It's no secret that Abraham Laboreal has been on our bucket list for a long time, but we've always known that he doesn't give many interviews. Abe tends to let his music do the talking, and he purposefully stays off the grid and avoids the spotlight. But thanks to the help of our New Jersey correspondent, Yinka Oyelese, we've secured this exclusive chat with one of the most coveted and recorded bassists in modern music history. For over 48 years, Abe has captivated our musical senses with his intuitive and masterful control of rhythm through his bass playing. He has worked with Fagan, Carlton, Giroux, Mancini, Gruzen, Ritt, Q, Herbie, Felder, Summers, Streisand, Cobham, Elton, and on and on. He's walked hand in hand with his good friend called Music since he was a young boy, and he's shared his gift with us all over the past several decades. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Abraham Laboreal Sr. Hey Abe, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and a privilege, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience through you. Yeah, we're, we're honored to have you here today. Oh, it, it gives us such joy to for all of our listeners. We've been waiting a long time, Rick, for this. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> And uh, and Abe might not know this, but he's been waiting for a lot uh, for us too. <laughs> but he just didn't know it. <laughs> Serendipity. It is completely. You know, we have people from all. We have people from all over the world. Uh, you know, Abe that are are listening to this, and uh, and I want to start off with something that's sort of a conceptual question. But you know, let me start off by saying, you know, you've been walking, and the way I like to be a little more poetic is walking sort of hand in hand with music for f- over 40 years, 48 years. And yeah. and uh, we've followed, we have followed, and all of our listeners have followed your energetic career for many decades. And and we are still amazed with your gift. And uh, so could you please tell us about your friend named Music and what it has meant to your life so far? Yeah, um, I was born and raised in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my father, well, my parents both are from Honduras, Central America. Mm-hmm. My father started to teach me to play guitar when I was six. Sure. Um, classical guitar. And to make a long story short, you know, that was the only spiritual language that I knew mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. So music has always been an integral and a crucial part of my life. Yeah. Uh, my brother, my older brother, uh, was the number one rock and roll singer in Mexico when I was... Um, 10 years old. Yeah. And so all the American publishing companies would send him records for him to consider translating into Spanish and recording. Wow. And the ones that he didn't like, he would give them to me. (laughs) And so at that age, I found myself listening to a lot of American music. Yeah. uh, Every style, you know, including Lambert Hendrix and Ross and... Mm -hmm. Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, Dave Rubik, all, all, I mean, all kinds of styles that my brother did not think would lend themselves for the kind of rock and roll that he wanted to record because he was primarily doing covers by Presley and Little Richard and yeah. like that. So uh, I suddenly was immersed in the best of American music, not realizing that one day I was going to move to the United States, you know. Yeah, that, that's... So, uh, I left Mexico when I was 21 to yeah. come to, to Boston. And then uh, I started Berkeley as a guitarist yeah. and majoring in composition. And then in 1971, uh, they allowed me to to switch to bass because, um, thank God, the teachers realized that it was more uh, what I had in my heart. Hmm, that's interesting. And that changed my life forever, you know, yeah. suddenly... 
I started to record with Gary Burton and Andy Pratt, and wow. the rest is history. Sure. <laughs> Music is my friend. <laughs> Music yeah. is a, <laughs> a, a essential part of my life. But I have to say that uh, in 1977, when I gave my heart to the Lord and I became born-again Christian, mm-hmm. a big, big, big uh, uh, burden was lifted because up to that point, that was the only spiritual language I knew. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that uh, the one that is creative is not me, but that I am just responsible to share with everybody else creativity. And suddenly I was able to be creative without feeling a burden, you know. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, it's funny how you mentioned about your father, you know, first pouring into you, you know, when mm-hmm. you were very young. And and, uh, and and now I sort of stand back and look at uh, where you are today. And in the same way, you've sort of poured into your sons because I believe they, they, they studied at Berkeley also. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, they did. Both, and, uh, both of them did. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's almost a generational legacy that you have with your family regarding the music, right? No question about it. In yeah. fact, Berkeley, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, gave us a special award called to the first family of Berkeley mm. to, because my two boys and myself, all three of us graduated. And uh, a lot of people never make it for, through the four years at Berkeley, you know, but we all sure. three of us did. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, uh, so so your dad, he, you know, he gave you your first guitar lesson, but we, we read through the details of, of a couple uh, bits of information that your dad taught you, and this is my getting into probably a little detail here, but he taught you how to utilize your ring finger in your playing mm-hmm. technique and guitar. Tell us the story about that, because there, it's it's, it, there was a reason why a technique was, was used. Yeah, yeah. Uh to be honest with you, my father was self-taught and an incredibly gifted mind. Mm-hmm. He uh, somewhere, somehow figured out how to tune the guitar. He would buy these books of, of classical music, and, and he would figure out how to play it. You know, So he knew the repertoire of uh, Tarrega and Soar and Caruli, books by Caruli and yeah. all of that. But then, because he was also a singer-songwriter, he would write these things in every imaginable South American rhythm. And when he would perform, he would perform accompanying himself on the guitar, and he literally sounded like two or three people backing him up. And that always, um, I was just flabbergasted by how he used his right hand and create all these rhythms and counter rhythms. Yeah. And so when I would ask him to, to explain how he did that, uh, to be honest with you, uh, in retrospect, he would sit down carefully and try to pass it on, but it was such a specialized thing <laughs> that I came up with my own way of doing it, but I could never quite match him. You know? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I was very much oriented towards using um, the the fingers of the right hand yeah. to get counter rhythms yeah. against the, the thumb and then percussive sounds You know, yeah. at the same time. Exactly. You know, you mentioned a... Of uh, your brother, who's actually we didn't even even say his name. Uh, his name is Johnny, and uh, correct. Uh, so so Johnny was the big brother, and he was he was doing his music thing. He was doing his covers, as you just told us. Right. And uh, so everything that he was playing and bringing in, you were absorbing like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. My brother, my brother was a, a superstar. Uh, even to these days, you might find this amusing, but uh, in Los Angeles, whenever I go to any place and I pay, mm-hmm. 
uh, the people look at my name and they says, oh, you know, there's somebody in Mexico with the same <laughs> name. <laughs> and I say, yes, it's my brother. And suddenly, you know, in restaurants especially, they ask people from the kitchen to come out and look at me. Yeah. In other words, who I am doesn't mean anything to them, but the fact that I am Johnny's brother, suddenly everybody wants to see me, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and it's too much. And, uh, <laughs> was, was Johnny very popular here? I mean, his band was called Los Cuatro Traviesos, which means in English, the, the Four Naughty Boys. And, no, um, that was my band. That was your band? Yeah, my brother's band is called Los Rebeldes del Rock. Ah. And they were the number one rock band in Mexico in the 60s. Now, check this out. Uh, when he died, the New York Times and the L.A. Times had uh, obituaries on him, and about 4,000 people came to his funeral in Mexico. He was very famous everywhere because he also was a soap opera actor, and he did a couple of films. So the people in the United States, the, all the Latin community, really loved him. Wow. He was a big deal, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, coming from a family, um, you know, not only with Johnny and your, your, but even your sister, wasn't she in the business also? Yes, my sister, my older sister, well, everybody except for my mom. Yeah. Um, my, my older sister, her name is Esperanza, and she combined the Esperanza and the Laboriel mm-hmm. and became Ella. And then um, my younger sister, who also unfortunately passed, uh, she was the star of a soap opera called El Derecho de Nacer, mm-hmm. and as Mama Dolores, and that also became huge, you know. Yeah. She was a star. That's... My younger sister, her name is Frances, and she uh, was incredibly gifted. She could play guitar, piano, arrange, sing, and act, and dance like nobody, you know. Wow, that's amazing. That's neat. And then my sister Esperanza, Ella, became like a, she was a singer. I mean, she is a singer, actress, but people kept giving her awards as the best, most elegant singer in Mexico. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. So we, our, our family is an important part of the entertainment history in Mexico. My father moved there in the 1920s, you know. Yeah. And he was a founding member of the Actors Association and Composers Association, Musicians Association, and Film Workers Association. So he was there at the beginning of all of those industries and unions. And, and had the privilege of participating in more than 200 films, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's that's uh, quite quite deep. Yeah. Hey, you, Eddie, you and Abe have had a, a good conversation, but it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Rick, would you like to join <laughs> us I'm gonna, here? I'm going to jump in now. <laughs> hey, um, such. <laughs> how do you pronounce your last name? It's, it's such, just as you said it. You wouldn't believe okay. how people butcher it, though. You know, <laughs> I'll let I'll leave that to your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> We, uh, Eddie and I, we found one of the earliest recordings that you played on while you were still in college, and it's the 1973 album "The New Quartet" by the amazing, yeah, yeah the amazing vibraphonist Gary Burton, who actually he was an influence of mine because I studied vibes. And um, do you remember this? I mean, tell me, tell us about the, you know, what you remember about that early, early session. Well, uh, a lot of things. Uh, Gary became, he started to teach. In Berkeley, I think in 1971 or so, uh-huh. which is about the time that uh, that I discovered that I could play electric bass, and then um, I was in some of his ensembles. Okay, um, 
this drummer, who's a, a close friend of mine, his name is Harry Blazer, uh, mm-hmm. convinced yeah. Gary to give me a chance. And we had a band with the guitarist Mick Goodrick. So Gary says, well, since the three of you are a band, let, let's uh, be part, let's make this record for ECM. And it turns out to be the very first time that uh, Gary recorded for ECM. And so it is historic for that reason, but also it's the first time that Gary allowed a rhythm section to really express themselves freely. He would not dictate to us how to approach his song. Yeah. And that created a very special feel. Um, recently in conversations with Peter Erskine, he says, man, what the feel and the music that you guys did to these days, the majority of us jazz musicians are very, very moved mm-hmm. by that because we never expected any jazz music to sound and feel like that. You know? Yeah. You know, we, we've we've heard that album a, a few times. I've mm-hmm. I've spun it around around uh, a few times, and it, you're right. It, the feel of that thing is so 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 loose and sort of natural. It's it's not right. con- it's not contained. But my question is this, Abe. Looking back at that, almost that might have been your first album uh, I, that you played on. I don't know. Um, it was actually, believe it or not, it was the second album in the same recording studio, oh, which really? is <laughs> amazing, you know. Yeah. Um, because I became friends with Andy Pratt in Boston. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so Andy Pratt recorded the album called Avenging Annie on that same studio in Boston. Okay. And then uh, a few months later, uh, I find myself back in the studio, but this time with Gary Burton, mm-hmm. and that just completely blew me away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what are your thoughts on that album? I mean, you know, over 40 years later, you, I don't even know when you've listened to that last, but if, if you were to, because you have it probably in your memory, stamped, but you listen to that again in your head, and wh- what are your thoughts on the, the very young Abe Laboriel playing that second gig with Gary Burton? What do you sound like? How, how would you critique yourself back then? Well, uh, I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. very honest with you. Uh, there is a, a serious element of fear. <laughs> because uh all the records that uh first of all gary was the number one uh studio musician in new york you know yeah and uh undisputed genius yeah and all the people that he worked with were like the best of the best Mm -hmm. but he you know was very close to steve swallow all all through that season then um, the next thing you know, I'm playing with him, so I was very nervous. And then the fact that we're doing ch- songs by Chick Corea and mm-hmm. uh, Gordon Beck and uh, Keith Jarrett, I'm saying, oh man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, is, this is a lot of responsibility. Yeah, exactly. But uh, there is a very special camaraderie. I'm going to say something that I have never heard before. Uh, Mick Goodrick, the guitarist was a fan of the way I would play rhythm guitar. Hmm. So, so he would ask me to explain to him what I was doing with my right hand, and then he would try to incorporate it. So I felt very, very privileged to have had some influence on Mick Goodrick's rhythm playing. Wow. But then Harry Blazer said to me, man, can you teach me how to play grooves on the drums? And in those days, I was 100% enamored of the meters you yeah. know, from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I always had a certain facility to and coordination to play drums. Mm-hmm. And so I would sit down and show Harry how to play those kinds of grooves. And then he and I would jam on those grooves until it sounded different, you know. And uh, 
So I was privileged that I had an influence on on both the drummer and the guitarist. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, and then when we started to play together, then I was free to go in any direction that I wanted. Yeah. And then, even though this is going to sound like a clinic, um, <laughs> I discovered early on that when you play the bass, <laughs> you have to let the rest of the people in the band do their part without interfering with their parts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So it was only when then I would, they would give me a solo that then I would start using more of a guitar technique during my solos. But yeah. when the melody is being played and the drummer and the guitarist are playing at the same time, I would try very hard to just stick strictly to the bass lines mm-hmm. and to not play very busy. You know? Mm-hmm. It's it's funny you say you say that it's um, I can just imagine it is for young musicians, bassists, or, or those in the rhythm section to have patience to know how to stand their ground and just keep the groove while the main melodies and whatever are going. Right. That must be rather hard for a young young musician, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's not natural. But uh, I was majoring composition and guitar between 1968 and 71. Then okay. in 71, when the teachers allowed me to switch to bass, suddenly everybody started to hire me to be part of their projects. And mm-hmm. so my life changed forever. You yeah. know? And uh, we would go on the road for about a year on during vacation time with 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 Gary. Wow. We performed in, in Montreal, I mean Montreal yeah. and Georgetown University and like that, you know, and uh, it was incredible. Yeah. Hey, um, Abe, are there any genres or styles of music that you love to play the most? And, you know, for instance, you've played on some reggae projects for Ziggy Marley in which, you know, the grooves were, you know, pretty amazing. What, what rhythms, what kind yeah. of rhythms really get you going? Well, uh, yeah, rhythm is my heart. Uh, when I teach privately, I tell people that the, the thing that they're going to learn from me more than anything else is a sense of time mm-hmm. and rhythm. Uh, and yeah. I emphasize just playing while subdividing internally so that uh, all the subdivisions uh, coincide with what the music is asking us to do. Yeah. And then uh, once you get uh, a rhythm going, it is not necessarily always a pattern, but it's a way of feeling music that complements what everybody else is doing. Yeah. You know, there is this great drummer named Jeff Porcaro who <laughs> also told uh, Jay Graydon when Jay says, you know, I notice that sometimes you are with the click and sometimes you're not with the click and it blows my mind how you can do that so well. And Jeff looks at me and he says, you know, Jay is nuts. He shouldn't be asking me this. And he says, you know, Jay, that I'm always going to prefer the music rather than the click. Yeah. I'm going to play yeah. whatever the music is asking for yeah. and whatever the musicians are doing. So if people are ahead or behind or center, that's what I'm going to do. If you don't want me, to, to change, then let me play alone with the click. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I'm always going to err on the side of the music, you know. Right, yeah, exactly. exactly. And so the rhythms that I like are, uh, thank God, I've, I've had a lot of experience playing many different kinds of rhythms, and uh, and one of the ones that fascinates me is a Colombian way of playing cumbia mm-hmm. that is not official, but according to my friend Justo from Colombia, mm-hmm. he says that uh, that particular rhythm is played by people that are just uh, unsophisticated mm-hmm. and that uh, in their neighborhoods they just start playing that way, not realizing 
that what they're doing is that special. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I, I love to, to do rhythms that are not obvious, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but we also have a streaming radio station called Inside Music Cast Radio, and we play music from a lot of our guests and a lot of similar music that we think our audience would appreciate. And uh, recently we did, we honored the music of Al Jarreau. It was his birthday uh, last week. And, of course, you've played on a few of his albums, you know, Look to the Rainbow in 77. You played on This Time in 80, Breaking Away in 81, Jarreau, Hearts Horizon. Do you have, tell us about the recollections you have on, on meeting Al and working with him. Well, uh, I'll start at the beginning. Um, this is very special. When I moved to Los Angeles, there was a drummer in Boston. His name is Peter Donald, mm-hmm. who who was... I got to do a lot of work in Boston with him. And so he moved to L.A. first. And then my, when my time came, he introduced me to Greg Matheson. Right, yeah. Yep. Because Peter Donald had a band with Greg Matheson, and they would perform once a week at the Big Potato. Mm-hmm. The original bass player with Greg Matheson was a guy named Joel DeBartolo, who was a Tonight Show band yeah, yeah. bass player. You know, And Joel also, for some reason, liked me, and he says, no, 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 no. I'm really busy with Doc Severinsen, so why don't you do the gig, and, yeah. and you'll be the main bass player, and then whenever I, I have time, I'll do it. So I ended up playing all the time with uh, Greg Matheson, and I did not realize that Greg had a very strong relationship with Al Jarreau through the years. Sure. So one day, uh, we were performing at a nightclub called Dante's, and mm-hmm. without telling me, Greg invited Al Jarreau to come and listen to me. And Al Jarreau came, and he asked me to come the next day for an audition. So I showed up for the audition, and they hired me, and I said to them, you know, uh, what's going on? And this is well, uh, we already have hired somebody else, but uh, we're going to go with you because <laughs> this is the first time in our entire lives that we can play at any volume without losing intensity. Wow. And that just completely blew my mind because they said that most bass players, when they play soft, the intensity changes and the feel of the music changes. Interesting. And then when they play really strong, it's fantastic. But they were able to do dynamics with me and and I was just so into it. Wow, that's that, great. That they could not believe it. So they hired me and that's how we did the Live in Europe album, you know. Yeah. That, that's we went on tour to Europe for six weeks and recorded that record and uh my my life changed. You know that he his music was so remarkable. In in the past week we've chatted a little bit I've chatted a little bit with uh with Larry Williams and uh, yeah. he he posted a comment on our um, on our Inside Music Cast radio stream uh, on Facebook, and he was just delighted, you know, because you know he was working with with Larry or with uh, with Al over forty years too, and yeah, yeah. And the the longevity of of the guys that that worked with Al. I mean, they're they're your best buddies right yeah. now, right? Absolutely, no. Yeah. Larry became his music director and made all the difference in Al's life. Yeah. Uh, in ways that we're going to even begin to explain. Larry has always been an exceptionally great musician. Oh. You know, when he moved to Los Angeles from Hawaii, Larry and Jerry Hay became Quincy Jones' right-hand man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the musicality is just ridiculous. Well, I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because speaking of Larry, 
um, that brings something to mind. I, I'm, I'm always reminded of of some of the the best performances that I, that I've seen in, and one of them was uh, it's basically done in 1985, and it was uh, a, a project that you actually played on with Dave Grusin, <laughs> and and it was in, in, at the record plant. I, I listened right. to that because uh, it, it was you know I still have the VHS tape, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, you know we play it over and over, but it's got you and it's got Carlos and Larry Lee Rittenauer, Ivan Linz, Phil Perry, and the, the of course uh, also another person that's not, that's not with us is Dave Valentin, and right. um, that uh, that whole performance is probably in my estimation one of the greatest live jazz and fusion performances I've ever seen, and you were a part of every track. Yes. In fact, uh, that's also another historic um, project because something like that had never been done before. Yeah. This guy from England came with five cameras and they recorded a direct 24 track. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a, a breakthrough in every imaginable way. And the, the way it was presented to us is that it was a demo to promote uh, laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the music became so strong that uh, then they had to release it as a pro, uh, as a, in in all the different formats. You know, they had never had a, a, a record made with five cameras and uh, live on the top of the line recording studio. You know? Yeah, so, that's amazing. And we were really very privileged to be able to play with such heart. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I remember one track, and you probably remember it too. It was a track called Oasis that Dave Valentin played yeah. his solo. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, uh, when, when I listened to, to Dave and his technique and his, it, you know, just his, um, his excellence of how he mastered the flute, is, is, it, it, it blew my mind because I was watching him. And, of course, Carlos, his drumming performance was sensational also. And yeah. uh, and little would you know that those two amazing musicians are are just not with us today. What what are your thoughts on that? That's amazing. Yeah, it's a uh, it's incredible, man. You know, um, life is not promised, and there are certain people that we all admire and love so much that we once we experience what their gift is, we realize that the sense of privilege to have shared that gift. Is something that needs to be treasured and yeah. cherished forever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Carlos and I really loved each other and got along, and uh, mm-hmm. we would laugh a lot. You know? <laughs> uh, he actually shared with me that uh, he, when he was in high school, he was not a good student, so his parents told him, you know, no more drums until you get good grades, and, and if you get good grades, then we'll buy you a drum set. So he got straight A's. They buy him. They bought him a drum set, and he quit. Yeah. <laughs> but then he says that he was so excited about his drum set that he would actually practice putting it in the case and getting it out of the case without playing. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that, but he, he and I would just talk about that and laugh a lot. You know, you, mean you just would pack it and then unpack it and pack it. Up. Yeah. And I would time myself. <laughs> 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 so Carlos was uh, forever an exception and uh, yeah. so musical. 
Well, Abe and Eddie, guys, uh, let's take a break and let's check out some music. Yeah. I want to go back to 1993 and uh, play a track from your Dear Friends solo album. And the track that I want to play is And I Do. And it has some amazing personnel on it, including, you know, Philip Bailey on lead vocals, Bill Champlin on backing vocals, um, your son, Abe Jr. on drums, uh, Dean Parks on guitar. You've got Greg Matheson on keys, Luis Conte on percussion, and uh, Justo Almario on sax. And of course, playing bass is our guest today, Abraham Laboreal on Inside Music Cast.
talked about you know obviously some great drummers um and and you, you mentioned jeff percaro earlier too yeah. and, and in 1980 there's a story about jeff percaro picking you up in his car and driving yeah. you to a session and that happened to be the new frontier session for donald fagan's that's nightfly right. album that's right tell us a little bit about that well that's in, that's very special uh, let me start off at the beginning in 1976 when i moved to los angeles Somewhere, somehow, I had a friend from Boston named Greg Prestopino, who is a great singer-songwriter, producer, and he was uh, working as part of uh, Electra Records. So he says, well, why don't we do a demo with you and see if you can become a, an artist on your own right? And he hired Jeff Porcaro and the, and the other members of the group called Little Feet. Yeah, okay, so, yeah. Billy Payne and Perry um, Tackett on guitar. Right, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Jeff Porcaro, so uh, Jeff and I hit it off immediately, and then a guy named Doug Livingston to play pedal steel, but the, the way Doug approaches the pedal steel is like nobody. It sounds like a different kind of an instrument. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very special way of being introduced to Los Angeles, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since, uh, we had a, a really strong love and respect for each other. So one day, uh, <laughs> Jeff says to me, man, uh, Donald Fagan wants you to play on his record. Uh, let me pick you up and I'll bring you and I'll wait for you to, to be done. And Jeff was, <laughs> you know, really loving, came to my house, picked me up, took me to the place, and then we started to play. And uh, and Jeff waited. So <laughs> after uh, four hours, we were done. And Jeff says to me, I've never seen anybody do a session that short. <laughs> <laughs> that's not surprising <laughs> yeah i guess especially with with donald fagan you know uh yeah. you know fagan steely kind of a session exactly. yeah that, maybe that was short <laughs> yeah no let me tell you when when i walked in they started to play a different song than the one that i played but they said uh i want to hear michael O'Marion's left hand and greg fillingaines Victor Feldman's right hand. Oh, Victor. Okay. And then I want to hear 
uh, David Forster's right hand and David Page's left hand. And I want to hear, and they kept, you know, I didn't realize that they had all these tracks with pianists, you know, Greg Feeling games. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then they kept listening and combining different hands, you know, <laughs> and then trying to decide which version they prefer. Exactly. And I said, oh man, this is going to take forever, you know. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So then when I started to play, they would give me instructions and I would follow the instructions to the best of my ability. And one moment that I actually all of us started to laugh, they said, Okay, hey, that that you're playing right now, that's what we want. Do that for the whole song. So I did that for the whole song and then at the end they says, No, it sounds repetitive. <laughs> 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 that's great. We've had Omardian on the show. We've had Phil and Gaines and a lot of the guys that have played on that album. And we've heard all those stories, too, about, you know, right hand, left hand, and, you know, guys <laughs> playing together on one keyboard at the same time and, you know, with yeah. one hand. But, you know, it's, clun- it's maybe, I don't know if the word clunky or, or, or maybe as unusual as those sessions are, and we've heard lots of stories. When you heard the music, when you heard the final, I mean, when you were actually involved in the recording process and going through that creative process with them, did did you have a feeling that this that album was going to be as special as what it ended up being? Well, at the time, I couldn't discern all the depth that was going into it. You know, mm-hmm. what I have to True. tell you, yeah. Uh, after after it was released, a lot of the recording engineers who have no idea who I am, when they are setting up the sound for whatever venue the good they're going to use, yeah, would play that particular song, and I'm saying, why are they playing the New Frontier? Do they know that I'm the bass player? Yeah. They had no idea who I was or, or, that, or that I was even there. Right. But uh, that has become the favorite song of, of a sound man to make sure that everything sounds the way they want it to sound. And then uh, the audience knows it by heart. And suddenly I realized that I had been, once again, privileged to participate in something that was going to be iconic. Yeah. Let's go back a year, because in 1979, Herb Alpert released the album Rise. That you know, It exploded on the charts, but it kind of surprised everyone because it was an instrumental album. And right. you played on the album. In fact, it's noted that you even played a little acoustic guitar for Herb. Is, is that true, or is that a typo? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that. I just want to make sure that's correct. You know, uh, Herb knew that I loved playing rhythm guitar, so in oh. some of the songs, he asked me to do that. That's, wow. that's so cool. That's so cool. All right. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. We didn't know for sure, but we said, we've got to ask him. <laughs> um, yeah. That's great. And, you know. And then later on, um, Michel Colombier was doing another record produced by Herb, and, uh, and he asked me to also play acoustic guitar, you know. So I had the privilege of doing that more than once for or Herb's camp. You know? That's great. Yeah. What, what a wonderful legacy that uh, that 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 he has. Herb yeah. has done amazing work, and yeah. and I'm I'm even a fan of uh, I'm, a, I'm a painter myself, but he's an amazing artist. He paints some beautiful, yeah, beautiful. And, and, and he's serious about it. You oh, know? he is. His I've gone a couple of times to his gallery exhibits, yeah. and uh, yeah, and he's very very serious and very, he's gifted. Yeah, he really he, is. Yeah, you know, it's a way for him to express something that. Nothing else can express. Yeah, you know, a while ago, Abe, you uh, did a, an extensive interview with uh, with Bass Player Magazine, and and at that time, they they basically um, reinforced the fact and the idea that you know labeling you as the one of the most recorded bassists with over four thousand sessions and and one of the best in the world because yes, you've played with everybody from Michael, Michael McDonald, Dolly. 
Benson. We can just keep on going, even Andy Summer, Christopher Cross. But but then there's a certain area of your of of a pool of artists that you've recorded with, and that's and I want to touch on the CCM area. This is the gospel circle because yeah. that includes. Andre Crouch, of course, which I'm I'm a huge fan of his m- my whole life, um, and Ron Canoli and Kelly Willard, Phil Driscoll. You know, how did your life experience go back to that when you had your 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 change of spiritual life and your addition, and how that had to influence a little bit of your future work, such as these great artists that even include Keith Green. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, in the same way that uh, when I first moved to town, uh, mm-hmm. I I had favor with Greg Matheson and and Greg called Algero to come and listen to me. Well, this is something very private that uh, the pastors that that, I, that I've been under say to me, you know, don't do that, you know. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> yeah. I woke up one morning and I said to the Lord, if you really... If you are really real, show me, you know. And the pastor says, no, no, you should not do that, you know, because that's not how our relationship with God works. But believe it or not, uh, at the end of that day, I received a, a well, I was in the studio called Ocean Way, mm-hmm. uh, number two, and uh, Bill Maxwell was on Ocean Way number four. And he says, Abraham, come, I want you to meet somebody, you know. And he introduces me to Andre Crouch. Wow. And then he's, Andre Crouch says, what are you doing tonight? And I says, well, nothing. He says, would you like to play with me live? We're going to do uh, the Omni Hotel, and maybe you can come. And on that night, suddenly I find myself on stage playing with Bill Maxwell and Andre Crouch and Harlan Rogers on piano. You know? Yeah. And I just, I said to myself, there is no doubt <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that there is a plan because that was the beginning of us talking with one another and praying about it would be great if we could have a band of instrumental music. And then, you know, a few months later, Koinonia was born, you know. Yeah. And so uh, Kelly Willard uh, was produced by uh, Harlan Rogers on a very special record called Hosanna. Right. And then Kelly started to call me to be part of her records. Billy Maxwell would do like eight Christian albums a year, and he would ask me to be part of that. And um, and it was real. I remember um, before I came to Los Angeles, uh, Bill Maxwell would do these Christian records with some of the top L.A. musicians like uh, the Crusaders and yeah. Larry Carlton, Larry Mohaberek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Tom Scott. And uh, and Bill Maxwell says that all these musicians will say to him, "Man, you actually believe in these songs, don't you?" you know? <laughs> 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 yeah. So there was a, a a difference of approach, you know. Yeah. And then um, when Bill started to ask me to be part of these projects, one of the very beautiful things that was said is that uh, Bill had no choice that if he wanted to offer to God the very best music. He had to hire the very best musicians in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But he says that uh, by the time I started to be part of L.A. studio world, suddenly the very best musicians that were available 
also loved the Lord, you know, so that there were, he did not have to choose anymore. Mm-hmm. It's funny. You, you know, you, you, um, that was a, a question, actually, that we were going to ask uh, on behalf of Yinka Oyelese, who is, uh, as you know him pr- fairly well, and uh, he's our Inside Music Cast correspondent in New Jersey. He, was, he basically asked us to, to ask you about the faith and how it's all interwoven into your music, and you've just answered that question in, in a quite beautiful way. Thank you. It is a it's a very special reality. You know, somebody uh, explained to me, music is invisible, you know. And so if it is invisible and subjective, that means that it comes from a spiritual realm. And, uh, and so the, the moment we start making music, we are in touch with a force and with a reality that is designed to make people forget about the problems and to bless them and to, to make this world a better world, you know. Well, we certainly need music right now. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> With what's do. going on in our world currently. Cause, you know, Absolutely. I, Desperately. I, I, men- I mentioned that on Facebook today. It's like if you're tired of the news of the world, tune into our radio station, Inside <laughs> Music Cast Radio, yeah, yeah, and just yeah, kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of take your I mind off. I that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Abe, we've had a pleasure of interviewing a lot of your, your closest friends that you've mentioned, Alex Acuna, Bill Maxwell, Greg Matheson, and... And uh, but but uh, you also have you know when you talk about Hadley and Harlan and Dean Parks and and even Husto, you guys are more than just musician friends. You guys are friends outside the studio also, aren't you? Right. There is a, a implied sense of privilege and respect that that never goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was wasn't Lou Pardini part of Coinonia at some time? Yes. The the last Coinonia album that we made, uh, which is like self-titled, uh, Lou Pardini was the singer. And by that time, um, I think Hadley and, and Alex had left. Yeah. So we, we used a guy named Mike Fisher on percussion for the mm-hmm. recording. And, um, and Mike Landau played the guitar. And then when we went on the road, uh, Mike Miller came on the road with us. And... Uh, it was special because it was Mike Miller and Chester Thompson doubling with Bill Maxwell on drums and percussion. Yeah. Lou Bardini singing, Justo, and myself. And uh, and then after that, uh, there was no more Koinonia records being made because the quality of the intention, instead of being primarily instrumental, became a vocal. And, uh, and thank God, Lou found uh, a doors wide open with the group Chicago, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, I want to I want to talk about um, quickly about session work versus playing live and touring. And you know, we know that the majority of your work has been, you know, session work over the decades. But you've also performed live many times. And and you've and I'm just curious, have you toured a lot? And and do you find your place in the studio more your comfort zone than than playing, you know, uh, live gigs? Well, I'm going to give you the. <laughs> My my two favorite quotes. One is from Victor Feldman, uh-huh. and the other one is from Lee Hour. Victor Feldman says, Abraham, when I do a lot of uh, film work in Los Angeles, yeah, uh, my creativity disappears and my sight reading becomes amazing. <laughs> okay. When I do a lot of studio work, then uh, my creativity grows, but my sight reading falls apart. Yeah, yeah, <sighs> I see. Yeah. Then Lyric and Hour said to me, Abraham, remember when you make a recording, 
think of a of a funnel. When you make a recording, you are on the big side of the funnel, and you need to edit and narrow your playing so that everything that comes out is distilled by the narrow end of the funnel, and it goes into the tape so that you don't interfere with the frequencies of any of the other people playing. Yeah, it's beautiful. But when you play live, it's the opposite. You are on the narrow end <laughs> of the funnel, <laughs> yeah. and you need to exaggerate everything as much as you can yeah. so that you can communicate to the audience is live, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful way to put it. That yeah. is really great. Yeah. So I, uh, I really took that to heart, and always looking for a sense of balance. But uh, as much as I look for a sense of balance, I realize that uh, my personality does not make those adjustments. So many times when I'm making records or when I'm doing a film, uh, the composers or the musicians that are conducting say to me, Abraham, what are you doing? This is a recording. You don't need to dance. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. So there's an exuberance that I have that never leaves me. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the first time I got to see your son, Abe Jr., play drums was, uh, it was probably 22 or 23 years ago. I, I went out to L.A. to see this, this show at the Baked Potato. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the show was Lenny Castro's birthday party. Oh. So it was Steve Lukather and Lenny Castro. And I'm trying to think, I think maybe David Garfield might. It was kind of a low lobotomy sort of crew up right, there. Right, but, right. Then, <laughs> but then I saw, I, I just remember saying to myself, who is this drummer? You know, because I'd never, I'd never seen him a, a, a play before, and I didn't know who he was. I had no clue. I mean, I knew the last name, so I figured he was your son. But, but <laughs> he's got to be good. He's got to be. He's got to be good. <laughs> and he had a little, he had a small little like trap set. You know, because that stage is so small. He had like this little trap set, and right. and I, I couldn't take my. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Luke fan, and I was there. I came all the way out there because I wanted to see Luke play, mm-hmm. in a small club at the Baked Potato. But I couldn't take my eyes off Abe Jr. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I just love the way he his he played most of the night with his eyes closed. He was just feeling his way through the parts, and I thought, man, he's he's got one of the best feels I've ever heard in a drummer. He just he was just working his way through. You could tell he was connected to everybody else, just you know, rhythmically, and he was just laying it down. It was it was fun to watch him play, mm-hmm. but but kind of piggybacking onto that touring question, you know, he's obviously it's a different day for musicians, and he. He seems to have found the right fit with touring, and of course now he's Paul McCartney's drummer. That's, right, it's, it's got to be really special. It is. Yeah. Every time we think about it, uh, we cannot believe it because they started at the Madison Square Garden during the 9/11 tribute to the firemen. You know. Yeah, yeah. And so we nobody imagined that it was going to last over 18 years. That's you know? <laughs> amazing. Yeah. But that's, uh, a- that's what they did, and uh, and it is a. It's a privilege, and uh, he really took to heart our conversations through the years. And uh, yeah. I remember, and I've talked about this before, when he was like maybe 10 or 11, he asked the, the crucial question, and I never realized that he was taking it to heart. Mm-hmm. He asked me, why is Jeff Porcaro so important? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he and Jeff really liked each other, and yeah. and whenever possible, he would come to see me record with Jeff, you know. Yeah. And he says, why, why is Jeff Porcaro so important? And I said, okay, let's go to the garage, and I want you to play a groove and play it consistently to the best of your ability. Yeah. And every time that is really good, I'm going to touch your shoulder and then try to remember what you did and try to repeat it, you know. Whoa. Interesting. And so 
every so often I would touch his shoulder, and then maybe I would say after you know half an hour or forty minutes, he just stopped and he says, "It's very hard." <laughs> I said, "That's why it's so important because he plays like that all the time." Wow! Yeah, That's not realizing that my son uh, took it to heart, and the rest is history. You know, he he learned to play with his whole heart. Yeah, every bar. Yeah, just like Jeff did. You know. That's a cool story. Abe do, <laughs> Abe, do you still teach your your boys? I mean, do they ask you still input on their playing or whatever? And how? Wh what's the musical relationship right now with you? Well, right now, uh, I'm glad you asked. We are finally because uh, the schedules are finally opening up. We are going to be working on a record. The three of us, ah. my son Mateo on guitar, yes, and Abe Junior on on drums and guitar, and and me. And so it's going to be the first opportunity for the three of us to do a project together. And, uh, you know, Mateo graduated from Berkeley as a record producer, engineer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Abe Jr. graduated from Berkeley on um, electronic music. And, and I graduated as a composer. So yeah. the combination of what each of us can bring to the party oh, has yeah. become this delicious opportunity. And what we do is we are no longer a teacher and students, but it's more like a peer thing. And, uh, and it is, it's going to be an, an amazing opportunity for the three of us to share with the world it's great. how we think about songs and yeah. harmony and feel. Well, know? I was anticipating that's what, how you were going to answer. I mean, it, that, that's what you were going to tell us anyway, that you guys were working on an album together. That's such yeah. cool news. Yeah, That is so yeah. cool. I saw a video one time, uh, Abe, Piggybacking on your future project with your sons, you all got together at Berkeley. You you returned yes. there and you performed live on stage as a, as a yes. family. <laughs> Tell us about that. I I love listening to that video just a couple of days ago, and I was just I was jazz. I was it brought me so much joy. Thank you. You know there is something about the privilege of being musicians together, and uh, and it shows you know. There is an explosion that happens in all of us that is relentless. And, and I love the fact that we don't only do it when we are together, but that, that joy and the love of music is shared generously every time my sons or me play with anybody. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I've got one question, and this is from um, our Stockholm, Sweden correspondent. His name is Mikhail Ingström. And um, mm. he wants to know how Koinonia got started up in Scandinavia and how you connected with Magnus Eriksson of Royal Music, who actually managed and promoted the Koinonia tours in Sweden, Norway, and, and Western Europe. So that's from Mikhail. Right. That's from Mikhail. Well, uh, all of that happened actually through Billy Maxwell. Because okay. before Koinonia was born, Billy Maxwell with Alger, with uh, Andre Kraus, who spent a lot of time mm -hmm. in Scandinavia. They had a, a, a Christian choir called Koralerna. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so Bill would produce and record, and then they would travel singing choral backgrounds for Andre. And they did, I would say, a good five years of that. So then when Koinonia came together, uh, Bill reached out to Magnus, and Magnus said yes, and uh, we did our first tour in 1981, I think. And uh, because the band actually was born in 1980, and, and yeah. it's unbelievable, uh, a year later 
we were touring. And then pretty soon Magnus, who was a youth leader, was able to get together 12,000 young people for our live album in Scandinavia, you know. And uh, it was a, a very special community and relationship that we developed through the years. I, I, a little earlier, we, I, I think um, you, you might have touched on the idea, that, you know, back in the 70s when you were um, in the process of maybe starting up some solo albums. And, and or, I think you had a producer mention that. Is that how yeah, you refer yeah, to But you ended up recording some solo albums uh, with the help of some of your best musician friends. You, you had an album called Dear Friends in 1993. Um, is yeah, it, that was produced, thank God, by Greg Matheson and then... Um, Doom was also produced by Greg. Mm-hmm. And then when we did the duo album with Justo Almario, yeah. uh, that was produced by both Justo and myself, but all of our friends participated. Sure. Participated, you know, Harlan and Greg, and yeah. Michael Thompson, um, Paul Jackson Jr., my mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those are the, the, the solo projects, yeah. Yeah, and then the other one, I, the one I really enjoy, I, I have this one, the Laboreal Matheson Project in 2001. Um, yeah. are you, it's been a while, and I know you said you're going to be working on this this new project with your sons. But um, have you thought about doing another solo project again? I'm sure uh, between you and I, there is a, a list of songs that I hope to record for a solo album. But uh, my children, thank God, their schedules have not allowed them to turn their attention to that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sooner or later, I know that. Uh, because they really want to support me and encourage me to go in that direction. So yeah. one of these days, uh, we'll be able to do that. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, Abe, um, you know, a, a couple of days ago, I was talking to, to Greg, Greg Matheson. And, and uh, you know, I, I will say, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that I told him, Greg, give, give me something good here to talk to Abe about. Give me something good. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, so it's funny, but I was like sort of, I was sort of like leading him on. Greg, help yeah. me out, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I said we we needed something to that that nobody else really knows. So so s- throw something at me, please. Do it. Well, he the day after he got back to me, he goes, okay, ask Abe about th- his little sayings. I said, what sayings? He goes, no. Remind him of this, okay? So he, so here are the little sayings. He he says little sayings like. Let the music win. <laughs> yeah. then, then, then he says, time has no green card. Right. <laughs> and then he threw another one and said, arrangers on parade. And I'm like, what the heck did you give me, Greg? <laughs> are, you, are you setting me up for failure with, to look like a fool? So, so Abe, I need to know something. I, I, what's going on with these things that, that Greg is talking about here, okay? <laughs> These are, you know, in general, my mind is a little bit scattered, and I'm very uh, free with my words. But uh, all these all these sayings appear, and then they become <laughs> like uh, things that people like to repeat. <laughs> so one day, one day we were doing a, a recording or or a live performance, and we 
Actually, we were at the baked potato, and uh, and we couldn't end the song, so the song kept lingering, you know. Kind of like Beethoven's fourth, you know. That's crazy. It takes like thirty bars to end, you know. Yeah. And then when we finally stopped, I said, "Wow, arrangers on parade." That's where it comes from. Okay. That's funny. Well, it, it made a very great impression on Greg. <laughs> yeah, no, and uh, one time we were doing something just as a duet, and Greg says, man, Abraham, you have an unbelievable sense of time. How do you develop that? And I says, well, time has no green cards because, you know, I was aware that I was Mexican, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my goodness. He, he just... Well, you, you've now gotten our audience that's listening right now sort of scratching their head and saying, is that Leib Laborio saying that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I see a line of T-shirts or bumper stickers. Oh, I know. Those are T-shirts <laughs> you can <laughs> <could> make. <laughs> oh, that's great. You but know, I have to tell you, uh, I learned that uh, when a musician really is making music for the service of music, mm-hmm. uh, what you want is that to help people to forget about their problems yeah. and to experience something that is going to make them get through that day. And all you want the people, the audience to remember is that they had an experience where they really loved the music and and what they experienced. Right. And so I said to people, you know, we have to let the music win. If the people remember us, we have not done a good job. But if they all, if, if the only thing they remember is that the music was beautiful, then we've done a good job. Let the music win, and that's why Greg likes that expression. You know, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, for forty-eight years, you've been letting the music win, and uh, we appreciate that very, very much, Abe. You know, you've, we've, uh, we've walked all these years listening to your playing and all the albums that we've collected, and. Uh, and we're just delighted that you've been able to spend some time with us here at Inside Music Cast with yes. me and Rick. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is you were a bucket list, and then finally yeah. we can scratch <laughs> and scratch your name off. And <laughs> but we've had such a great time to to talk with you and to hear your energy and your joy, and your your passion that you still take to the studio every day. So thank you so much for for being with us. Okay. This is a privilege. I um, I love these conversations that we're having, and uh, and I. Honestly, hope that uh, your audience will celebrate and have as much fun as we've been having. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So you could do me one more favor, and, and this is more for the Spanish-speaking countries. Just uh, if you can just greet them all and uh, send them some love. Could you please, Abraham? Sure. Um, en compañía de Rick Such and Eddie Cabello, es Abraham Laboriel, el bajista, enviándoles un gran abrazo y los mejores deseos de que esta época les traigan a ustedes todas las cosas buenas que han estado buscando. ¡Viva la música! ¡Viva la música! That's exactly right. That's right. Music always wins. <laughs> Thank you, Abe. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you so and, uh, much. God bless you. We'll see Take you. Take care. You the best. Bye-bye. 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 Special thanks to Abraham Laboriel for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is a collaborative effort of music lovers worldwide, and our team includes Brian Pearson in Chicago, Kim Riley in South Florida, Scott Gross in Tampa, Mikhail Engstrom in Stockholm, Sweden, 
Scott Sheriff in Nashville, Don Brightup in Los Angeles, Loretta Sassaman in Seattle, Yinka Oyelese in New Jersey, and Arnaud Legere in Paris, France. Be sure to check out our newly rebranded Inside Music Cast website that includes a fresh look, guest search options, a new podcast audio player, downloadable episodes, Inside Music Cast Radio, and our new studio tours feature with photos and information about some of our guest studios, workspaces, and gear. Find it all at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside Music Cast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for your support of Inside Music Cast. Music Cast.